are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. So yes, there's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy. That people don't feel that they can do very much. You know what this is? This is a very Hamiltonian system. Alexander Hamilton being the guy here in a very un-Jeffersonian. In the case of the Republicans, it's dramatically the opposite. Uh, But even in the case of the Democrats. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans themselves. America's fascists are those people who think that Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. We're only seen as a financial sector that's uh, gotten out of hand. The shooting, the violence, that is not the drug problem. That is, in fact, the drug policy problem. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. Democrats are always an interesting bunch. Who are we as Democrats? What do we stand for? Some progressive things, some liberal things, some not-so-liberal things. Traditional liberal Democrats took pretty significant pride in knowing that the Democratic National Committee and their candidate, Hillary Clinton, endorsed many of the issues which the Bernie Sanders campaign, the revolution, has been all about, such as the $15 minimum wage, an end to the death penalty, immigrant rights, reproductive rights, and a lot more. But what about issues of war and peace? Conventional wisdom is that Republicans are the hawkish ones. They're more eager for wars than Democrats. But in taking a look at the 2016 official Democratic Party platform, a reconsideration of that belief is certainly in order. You know, uh, Republicans have been seen to be, most people believe that they may be more servile to the military-industrial complex, but it ain't necessarily accurate. I guess today... I'm very pleased to have with us Phyllis Bennis. Thanks for being with us. Good to be with you. Uh, she directs the New Internationalism Project at the esteemed Institute for Policy Studies and is a fellow of the Transnational Institute in Amsterdam. She's active in U.S. and global Palestinian rights and peace movements. Her books include Challenging Empire, How People, Governments, and the U.N. Defy U.S. Power, and Ending the U.S. War in Afghanistan, a primer. Phyllis Bennis has written and edited 11 books, among them her new Understanding ISIS and the New Global War on Terror, a primer. The sixth updated version of her popular Understanding the Palestinian-Israeli Conflict, as well as Before and After U.S. Foreign Policy and the War on Terror are out now. Well, again, thanks for being with us, Phyllis. You examined the 35-page document well, at least the draft document was 35 pages, which uh, was adopted by the full convention in Philadelphia. And that is the focus of today's Keeping Democracy Alive. And before we get to the uh, negatives in the platform, I think it's important to acknowledge that some new and significant progressive positions have been adopted. Again, the 2016 platform has been called by many the most progressive platform in recent Democratic Party history. Uh, We mentioned a couple of those. And what do you think the pressures were 
uh, that were successful in getting these progressive liberal uh, stances in the platform? Was it the Bernie Sanders campaign, uh, pressure from within the party? What do you think made that happen? Well, it was, a, it was a host of things, and I think we should be having no illusions that the fact that something makes it into the platform doesn't necessarily, uh, and in fact rarely means that right. it actually is something that candidates and later presidents or senators or members of Congress hold themselves accountable to. So with that caveat, I think the debate on the platform uh, was actually quite important for showing the range of what is considered acceptable debate within the party. Uh, And it gives tools for activists to, on their campaigns, to hold elected officials accountable. It becomes a useful tool. It doesn't happen by itself. There's no doubt that a great deal of the pressure on the uh, Clinton campaign, which was even at the time of the platform debates before the convention, was clearly still the dominant dominant campaign. The pressure came first from the Bernie Sanders campaign. That had been unexpected in terms of its breadth. I think the the origins of the Bernie Bernie Sanders campaign uh, was focused quite narrowly on the questions of economic injustice, right. economic inequality, uh, the issue of money in politics, the role of the banks, etc. Um, it was on those issues that Bernie Sanders began bringing significant pressure to bear on the Clinton administration. It then broadened to some of the movements that and issues that you mentioned, Bert, and some others. You know, we had uh, much stronger positions on abortion rights, on mm-hmm. the, as you said, the, the fight for 15, the $15 an hour minimum wage, ending the death penalty, taxing the rich, yeah. better on immigrant rights. Uh, and crucially, there was some critical talk, although not of a definitive statement, about these terrible trade deals that have so decimated not only the U.S. economy, but the economy of countries around the world, uh, far more than ours, in fact. Mm. Um, the supporters of both the Bernie Sanders campaign and the longtime movement activists working on, for example, the issues around trade, right now the Trans-Pacific Partnership being the main uh, example of that, they failed to get into, the, into the, uh, uh, the, the language of the draft something that would say, we stand against the TPP, we stand against the Trans-Pacific Partnership, right. period, full stop. What they got was kind of anodyne language that said, you know, we are against any trade deal that doesn't take seriously uh, labor rights and environmental protection, which would be fine if they had gone on to say, and since clearly the TPP does not, we're against it. Right. It didn't say that because they were unwilling, ultimately, to challenge President Obama, their president. Right. So it's a very soft criticism. But even in that sense, it still goes farther than earlier uh, iterations of the Democratic Party platform. So in that sense, it's a, uh, it's a step forward on, on that range of primarily domestic yes. uh, social and economic issues. Right. The foreign stuff is 
quite a bit different. And there were some really interesting people on the uh, the committee that wrote the platform, some really good people, Congressman Elijah Cummings, uh, let's see, Howard Berman, Paul Booth, Carol Browner, Keith Ellison, who's significant, uh, Representative uh, Louis Gut- Gutierrez, Barbara Lee, Bill McKibben, uh, let's see, Dr. Cornell West, of course, James Zogby, uh, and uh, the, the clean, uh, Sanders campaign policy director, Warren Gunnels. Uh, there were some, some interesting people on there. And it seems that, you know, the TPP language, as you say, is extremely soft because they didn't want to embarrass the president. I heard this when I was at the convention. Uh, but it does seem that, that the pressure that, that was evident there is continuing because now... Right. From from what I hear, the uh, the TPP uh, the, the opponents of it, the Trans Pacific Partnership, are are strengthened and braver, and I think it's probably uh, pretty close to dead in the water. Well, we'll see. I, clearly, it pushed Hillary Clinton, who had been a longtime supporter of all of these trade yeah. deals, yeah. Uh, going back to her time as first lady when when NAFTA was being debated and mm-hmm. passed under the Bill Clinton presidency, uh, and she supported all of them. She supported the TPP at an earlier point. Yeah. Uh, but the fact that she now feels that to keep her party in line, she has to come out against it. Yeah, I don't think she is strongly against it. Right. I don't yeah. think it's impossible that she would change her position. But I think that would be very, very difficult at this point. Not impossible, but very difficult. There is a move to get a lame duck session uh, oh. to vote on the TPP. And there it would be a close vote. There will be many... Democrats who will not be willing to vote against President Obama. Right. Uh, there will be plenty of others who feel that they have to vote against the TPP to stay in to stay in office because their their constituents yeah, back home are strongly opposed to it. Right, and I think that's a significant factor that that plays into the Democratic Party is the pressure from the ground up. Sometimes. Absolutely, it, it can actually work, and I know absolutely, and we saw that with this. Uh, with the the um, uh, the platform debate overall, the role of social movements yes. was very very uh, present. Yeah. Those movements that were strong, for example, the movement around the fight for fifteen, the movement around Powerful. the TPP, mm-hmm. uh, the the movement for reproductive freedom, all of those movements, powerful movements with supporters in the party, uh, were able to to make significant gains. Uh, if we look at who was on, you went through some of the names, people who were on the platform drafting committee. The reason, for example, that uh, the Bernie Sanders committee, cho- well, they chose uh, the leader of 350.org, Bill McKibben, yes. uh, on, on climate. They chose a leading uh, Native American activist. They chose uh, uh, Cornell West and Jim Zogby. Yes. Now, those two were interesting because they were known, both of them work on other issues. But both of them were known and are known for their support for Palestinian rights. Absolutely. Now, that was quite significant because the, the Sanders campaign did not choose for their, among their, they had six people that they were allowed to, to pick to be on, the, on no. the drafting committee. The Clinton campaign had seven, and the DNC had, I think it was five. Um, so each of them was balancing political constituencies, Right. So for the, the Bernie Sanders campaign, they could have chosen someone more identified with uh, the broad anti-war agenda or the broad anti-war movement. Yeah. 
They could have brought in somebody from one of the organizations, from Peace Action, from the American Friends Service Committee. I mean, there were a lot of options. Uh, what they chose instead was to downplay the, the broad issue of war and peace, the war in Syria, the global war on terror, the drone war, that whole set of issues, in favor of focusing on Israel-Palestine. That had, I think, a, a, both a good and a bad side. Mm. The bad side was that the issue of war was really taken off the agenda, hmm. not only by the Clinton campaign, because as we know, the, uh, Hillary Clinton has emerged over the recent years as a major supporter of military solutions to yes. all of these crises around the world. Yes, she was the leading voice for pushing the U.S. towards direct intervention militarily in Libya back in 2011. Uh, she voted for the war in Iraq before that. So, you know, we, we, we go back. Um, the good side of it, however, is that it does reflect the fact that while the overall peace movement is not in very good shape right now, is, is facing some very significant mm. organizational and political challenges, mm. the movement for Palestinian rights is in very good shape and is having real victories in massive cha- change of the public discourse on this question. And it was in response to that, I think, that the Sanders campaign recognized that that would be a good movement to put forward, put forward two very good advocates within that movement, Jim Zogby and Cornell West, uh, knowing that they would speak to that issue, they would speak for Palestinian rights, they would fight for it, uh, and they were public, they are both public figures known for those positions. So that was quite a, a, a major step forward that it was, it was saying we no longer believe, if we ever did, that criticizing Israel is somehow political suicide. Yeah, or anti- This was a statement that that is no longer the case. That was very important. It's very, very significant. And that criticizing Israel is not at all the same as anti-Semitic, something I've been after for a long time, uh, right. being Jewish and caring about our tradition of ethics. And, and what's going on in Israel now with, uh, you know, Netanyahu, the settlements, etc. You know, the two, Zionism and, and Judaism, are not one and the same. Uh, exactly. Our guest today is Phyllis Bennis, who directs the New Internationalism Project at the Institute for Policy Studies. We're talking about the Democratic Party platform, focusing in on issues of war and peace. And I have to say, being at the convention, I was very much impressed what you were just talking about uh the uh lapel stickers for uh, uh human rights for palestinians somebody somehow snuck onto the floor uh, a big palestinian flag and it was being waved around and, and shown around and you know nobody tried to shut it down as i'm sure they would have in the other party's convention it was very very visible presence and and as you you write that Israel-Palestine, for so long excluded from any mainstream debate, was a major focus of the committee's public hearings, and that the movement to end support for Israeli occupation and apartheid and to support Palestinian rights is, at this moment, probably the only part of the broad anti-war, anti-militism movement that is on the rise. It is energetic, empowered, creative, and grounded largely among young people, many of them people of color. I think, end of quote, I think that's particularly interesting, the the uh, linkage between people of color, the Black Lives Matter movement here in the United mm-hmm. States, and the Palestinian, yeah. it's really happening. So what, what's... It's a very powerful uh, connection that's being made. Some yes. of the key activists 
very early on from what is now the Black Lives Matter movement, even before it was called that, um, took up the question of Palestine, went to Palestine to visit, learned from the Palestinians. One that we saw that as early as the protests in Ferguson uh, over the, the killing of Michael Brown in, back in uh, 2014, when the Ferguson police, who had been using uh, freely supplied Pentagon military equipment, right. uh, they had tanks in the streets of, of, uh, of Ferguson, and they were using tear gas in massive amounts. Uh, they learned from Palestinians some of the best ways oh. of dealing with tear gas, because <laughs> Palestinians have a huge level of uh, of experience, experience yes. with tear gas. <laughs> they sure do. Uh, so it started there, and there was a delegation. They went to uh, they went to first to to uh, Geneva to the UN to uh, testify in front of the Human Rights Commission of the UN. The uh, sorry, the Human Rights Council, uh, and then it was building ties with Palestinian organizations and traveling to Palestine, and they came back saying. We see parallels. They're not identical, but we see parallels between Jim Crow segregation, between apartheid, and what we see both inside Israel and in the Israeli-occupied territories. So this has been an ongoing uh, linkage that has been a very, very important part of building that movement. But it predates that as well. I mean, I think if we look at the rise of organizations like Students for Justice in Palestine and Jewish Voice for Peace, Mm-hmm. Uh, both of whom have very strong campus uh, presence. Uh, you see a lot of young people that are taking up this issue. The yes. BDS campaign, the yes. Boycott Divestment Sanctions campaign, that aims to bring nonviolent economic and political pressure on Israel to stop its violations of human rights and international law. BDS is, is growing all around the world. Here in the U.S., it's having quite extraordinary impact in college campus campaigns, in city campaigns, statewide campaigns, and we're seeing a very strong pushback, uh, particularly on the campuses, where some of these terrific young organizers are facing uh, incredible efforts by not only um, opposing student organizations, but by the universities themselves, uh, who are trying to shut down the organizations, who are trying to claim that it's somehow anti-Semitic, claiming all kinds of things, bringing court cases in some cases, uh, and I, in my view, a lot of that is happening precisely because that movement is on the rise. It's having successes. Yeah. Uh, and that's, you know, that's the, that's the old statement from Gandhi. You know, first they ignore <laughs> you, then they laugh at you, then they Fight repress you, you and then, then you, you win. win. Yes, absolutely. I love that statement. And you know, I, I do find it interesting that it, it's almost humorous that, the Black Lives Matter and other uh, similar groups uh, saw some, uh, you know, went to uh, Palestine to check out uh, how uh, t- some linkage there, some political uh, linkage there. I find it fascinating that the American police are studying with the Israeli military for the. Yeah, that's <laughs> the other side of the collaboration. The Israeli oh, military and police forces are teaching a number of U.S. Yes. municipal police yes. departments. Uh, how to deal with what they call riot control, which for the Israelis is a military matter. Yes, It's one of the things that matches the, the Pentagon efforts of the last couple of years to get rid of massive amounts of war material brought back from the war theaters in Iraq and Afghanistan. They don't quite know what to do with it. It's not the latest stuff, so they don't want to keep it in their own arsenals. So they've been offering it to 
local police forces around the country, and unfortunately, far too many of these police forces are accepting oh, yeah. these free uh, military supplies. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, you have a tank in a in a tiny town like mm-hmm. Ferguson, mm-hmm. and what happens when there's a small disturbance? Somehow you militarize it and take out, bring out the tank to respond, because it's in a black community. Yes. Because there's a racist understanding about the relationship between the police and the uh, the the citizens of that town. Uh, and what we're left with is what we all know from what happened in Ferguson. Absolutely, and the uh, the fact you know we're, we're focusing on the Democratic Party and how they're shaping their positions and their platform. The, the tradition has been that uh, the Democratic National Committee, the party, really depends on support from people of color, uh, African-Americans. That's been a right. big part of their base. And I wonder how much that aspect of it, I mean, it's still the, the, the Black Lives Matter. That's my senses, and you probably know more than I do on this, that it's still kind of young people. And it's true, there are millions of young people who are amazingly active, which must have scared the uh, whatever out of the uh, Democratic National Committee uh, for Bernie. But I wonder if, if, if there is, if, if the party insiders, the people that make up the platform, uh, do they recognize that more and more uh, black people are, are seeing that, you know, there's some uh, linkage with uh, the Palestinians, or is that still a little bit I do think they recognize it. I think one of the issues that we face is the, here's where the age issue comes in within the black community as well. Yeah. The, the big shots within the Democratic Party who you're talking about, they know full well what the demographics are of their partisan base, that you cannot win uh, a national election like for president uh, if you don't win significant percentages of the black and Latino community in particular, and part, probably yeah. the Asian community as well, yes. uh, just because of how the numbers play out. Right. But they also are very aware that some of the longer-term, older yeah. uh, black community organizations have long-standing relationships to the leadership of the Democratic Party, yes. endorsed Hillary Clinton long before Bernie Sanders was even in the campaign. Yeah. Uh, and they know that that's that they will bring those those organizations along. Now, the question is: at some point, the demographics will shift so that those organizations will no longer represent or speak for or be able to mobilize significant sectors of the black community or the Latino community because that community is different. It's it's younger and it's getting younger all the time. So that will change, but I don't think we're there yet. Right. So I think that while there's a great deal of awareness about the importance of the, uh, the, the voters of color in the Democratic Party, uh, that doesn't yet translate to a sense of what it means to be accountable to the progressive wing of uh, the, the black and Latino community. Yeah, and one of my favorite phrases comes from Paul Wellstone, that he was from the Democratic wing of the Democratic Party, which we mm-hmm. saw with uh, the Bernie Sanders campaign. And I, I, I wonder, in the platform committee work, do you know if there was any discussion of the costs and benefits of America's many current wars? Do they, do they consider As far it? as we know, there was no discussion of it. It's right. one of the things that I wrote about in this article in The Nation, um, that the, the cost of wars were barely mentioned, and there was no hmm. real discussion about it. There was a sort of throwaway line about um, uh, a bloated budget or, or ending waste at the Pentagon, but it didn't call for anything in specific. And, you know, we have to be, uh, we have to 
recognize that the Democratic members of, of Congress, for instance, virtually all of them have supported every single act of the, uh, the Pentagon budget decisions in the past. Yeah. For example, the F-35 fighter bomber, which is a plane that the Pentagon has said it doesn't want, it doesn't need, it can't use, because it's rooted in the Cold War. It's rooted in right. 25, 30 years ago. It's going to cost $11 billion, and they don't want it. But Congress insists on funding it and building it, and every member of Congress, including Senator Bernie Sanders, voted for it, because he, and he fought to get it based in Vermont. Yes. Uh, Senator Hillary Clinton voted for it. Uh, you know, so, and members of Congress who have some, you know, what, what the military-industrial complex has done very brilliantly has been to divide across the country the venues of production, right? where, where and how they produce these various weapons, like, say, the F-35. It's produced in, in factories in something like 300 or more congressional districts. Mm. So it guarantees that none of those members of Congress are going to oppose it because that would mean opposing local jobs. Right, right. They're just not going to do that. Yeah, that's that's been the case uh, for a long time, and and you're bringing back uh, a lot of memories. That, you mean the Democratic Party? I you know I remember in their mid '60s, uh, there was the split was growing between the the pro-war faction and the anti-war faction, and it goes on and on and on. And and I'm wondering what your sense is of how much of a motivating factor was the at least half century old Democratic Party concern about looking soft on the use of force. Is, is that part of, I mean, it's certainly the jobs factor. There's no question about that. And as you say, spreading it out all over the country is, is, is brilliant strategy for keeping Absolutely. it alive. But, but how about the, the fear of looking soft on the use of force? Well, I think that's a very big deal. I think it's stronger these days than it used to be uh, because the fear factor, the fear of terrorism uh, has become so routinized in U.S. politics since September 11. And because on September 12th, that was really the day the world changed. The world didn't change on September 11th. It was a terrible, horrific uh, crime against humanity that was committed on September 11th. But it didn't threaten our democracy, and it certainly didn't threaten the world. What threatened the world was the day after when George Bush said that the response to that terrible crime would be to take the world to war. And indeed he did. And he did so by telling the American people who were frozen, paralyzed with fear, yeah. paralyzed to the point where I think people would have followed any leader anywhere. Yeah, true. Uh, what George Bush presented was a choice. He said, we can do one of two things. We either go to war or we let him get away with it. Those were the options. There were no other choices. There were no options that had to do with international law, with global cooperation, nothing. It was war or let him get away with it. And since nobody was prepared to, quote, let him right. get away with it, right. people supported war who, under other circumstances, never would. And now that's become normal. Yeah. That's been the new normal. Mm. So that's a huge challenge that we face. And, and with that uh, new normal, uh, the, any rather obvious lessons of our experience in Vietnam were just completely pushed aside, just Totally, right. because now we got the it fear. It was the end of the Vietnam syndrome. <sighs> mm. 
God, that bothers me greatly. If you just tuned in to Keeping Democracy Alive, Bert Cohen here. Our guest today, Phyllis Bennis, who directs the New Internationalism Project at the Institute for Policy Studies. We're talking about the Democratic Party platform on war, basically. Was there any discussion informing the, the platform about any possible new positions or, or new uh, perspectives relative to the controversial 2001 authorization of the use of military force, an act that uh, Hillary and many voted for enabling the, the uh, invasion of Iraq. Was there any discussion of that? There was a tiny bit of discussion, um, but it was, not, uh, it was not taken up in a, in a, um, a serious way. Um, it was, um, there, there was, um, there was only a call, uh, you know, this is something that Barbara Lee, who was on the drafting committee, has been pushing for, for years now. She was, of course, the only member of Congress who voted against the 2001 authorization, Mm -hmm. which was very focused. The 2001 authorization said that the president could use force against those who carried out the attacks of 9-11 and those who harbored them. It was quite specifically designed to include uh, al-Qaeda and uh, Afghanistan, which was then under the the governing of the Taliban. Mm -hmm. Um, That has been relied on ever since, both by Bush and by President Obama, to say that it also justifies uh, the the war against ISIS, the war against al-Qaeda in as far afield as as North Africa. There's no limits to it. There's no sunset policy. So this time around, um, all that we got was there was a call to to seek an updated congressional authorization that is more precise about our efforts to defeat ISIS. Uh, and it, it did say that the new the new authorization uh, does not involve large scale combat deployment of American troops, but it didn't prohibit that kind of deployment. It didn't say that. Uh, the kind of, de- of combat deployment that we have underway now, where with almost 6,000 U.S. combat troops and special forces troops and others are in uh, Iraq and hundreds are in Syria, um, it basically just said, we want a, a, a more specific authorization. And this is what President Obama has said on a number of occasions. Yes, I'd like a more precise authorization. But don't worry, Congress, if you don't do it, I don't really care because I think I have all the authorization I need from the old one. Uh-huh. So it doesn't really matter. And then as a result of that, of course, nobody in Congress wants to take it up. The Democrats don't because they don't want to, uh, they don't want to have to vote in favor of a war that their, their constituencies, constituencies are overwhelmingly against. The Republicans don't want to take it up because they never met a war that they didn't like and they don't want to limit the wars. So it's a messy uh, situation, and the result was the kind of wiggle room language that mm-hmm. doesn't really require any real changes. Ah, uh, wiggle room. <laughs> Once again, enshrined in platform anyway, yeah. if not in policy. And the U.S. and much of the West in general, they're at war with ISIS now. They're, they're the new enemy. Considering the members of the platform committee do you know, was there any discussion about the pretty obvious fact that American occupation of Iraq set the stage for the creation of ISIS? And if not, would they just not want to touch that at all? There must have been some people who would have liked to have brought that up. Yeah, not so much. <laughs> <laughs> that actually didn't come up. Uh, um, 
in the it could have in the discussion about the authorization for force, um, but it didn't even hint at that that it was the occupation of Iraq, as you say, that set the stage. Uh, you know, for all the people that believe that uh, that. ISIS was created in 2011 when President Obama pulled out the troops from Iraq. Spoiler alert, that's not when it happened. It happened back in 2004 at the height of the Bush administration's occupation of Iraq when there were about 150,000 U.S. troops in Iraq and another 40,000 NATO troops. That's the the conditions that gave rise to Hmm. the organization whose name later became ISIS. So this notion that it somehow was a reflection of the withdrawal of troops is completely backwards. Yeah, well, history. <laughs> myth, myth is easier than history, <laughs> as mm-hmm. we all know. And given the, to me, incredible recruitment successes that, I guess it was uh, al-Qaeda in Iraq and now it's called ISIS, whatever, the, the recruitment success that they've been enjoying in recent years— I, there must have been some discussion of dealing with the conditions that have led so many to join ISIS in Syria. Nah, Libya. not so much. Because <laughs> the problem is when you start talking, I don't mean to be no, no. cynical about it, but <laughs> there is uh, th- there is part of me that's cynical. But the other side of it is there's a recognition that if you begin to acknowledge that people are being drawn to fight with ISIS. Uh, for reasons that have less to do with ISIS. They're not all sociopaths who, who want to engage in this kind of up-close and personal extreme violence, but that people might be responding to really horrific social conditions in their lives, whether it's Iraqi Sunnis who feel that as bad as ISIS is, there's somehow a lesser evil than mm. the, the uh, terrible Shia sectarian uh, government of Iraq, or whether it's young uh, two, second or third or fourth generation Muslim immigrants in, in France or in somewhere else in Europe uh, who are French citizens and grew up speaking French and going to French schools, but have never felt accepted, never felt they had the possibility for a decent job, a decent sure. life, uh, and they are alienated, feel a great deal of dispossession and despair that they are going off to join ISIS for the same reasons, not because of the violence, although that may be true for a few people, but despite the violence, that mm. the, the sense of belonging to something is enough to overpower that, that sense of outrage about the, the, the violence. Mm. So as, as long as you, you put those in the foreground, when you start to acknowledge those things, it means you need to start figuring out a strategy for dealing with those conditions, yes. dealing with the conditions that lead people to think ISIS is a lesser evil. Mm. And they don't want to touch that. Nobody does. The Republicans don't. The Democrats don't. The president doesn't. Congress doesn't. Uh, and the result is that they go forward with these military solutions, despite President Obama's own words over and over again, there is no military solution. Right. Every time he says that, I want to jump up and hug him. <laughs> but and then he goes on to the next sentence, and I don't want to hug him so much, because <laughs> the next sentence is always, so we have to do all these, these other things along with the military. But the actual actions, where is the money? You know, follow the money. The yes. money goes to the military. The high-level attention goes to the military. The basis of the discussions with, whether it's Russia or whether it's with uh, any of the other countries, with NATO, with Europe, with Saudi Arabia, with Turkey, any of these discussions is about how to do the military. It's not about 
how to change the conditions that are giving rise to this kind of terrorism. Oh, I guess that's a problem. Oh, it's a huge problem. I guess it's it's too complicated. But to me, I mean, you know, there's people are worried about the future. And if we really want to have less terrorist attacks, maybe we could look at it a different way. You call the current uh, Democratic Party platform, too, in the ISIS, uh, anti-ISIS strategy, uh, most closely resembling whack-a-mole. What do you mean by that? Right. Well, it's a kind of global effort wherever ISIS pops up. You know, they move mm-hmm. to Libya. Let's, let's go invade Libya. They, <laughs> they, they scatter from there uh, in, back into, uh, in, into Syria. We'll go smash them there. They'll pop up. They'll leave Syria. They'll run away. We'll, we'll recapture uh, this town or another town, and they'll pop up somewhere else carrying out a, a terrorist attack in Brussels uh, or in the Philippines or somewhere else. And we'll smack them down there. It's like the game of whack-a-mole, right. except played on a global scale with enormous human consequences. Because what we're seeing, even now, even if the U.S. military uh, efforts uh, and other countries' involvement as well, even if these military efforts end with ISIS losing most of the territory uh, that they once controlled, you look at that by itself, that's a good thing. Nobody wants uh, thousands of people to be living under this horrific rule of of ISIS extremism, but it doesn't mean that ISIS disappears. It just means that in many cases the same people will disappear and they'll reemerge somewhere else, carrying out, if not the seizure of territory, old-fashioned terrorist attacks, maybe against Europe, maybe against Asia, maybe in North America. Uh, so you know, wherever they get smacked down, they're going to pop up somewhere else until we deal with the conditions that give rise. The problem we face is that just like after 9-11, anyone who used the bad words root causes was somehow considered an apologist for terrorism, somebody who was accepting it as legitimate or thinks it's okay, when the reality is if we're serious about ending it, which God knows we should be, we have to take seriously the conditions that give rise to it. Mm. And it's not enough to just say, this is all about... Uh, this this is all about a military challenge. Yeah, it's it's hard to believe. I know some cynical people say, you know, it's all for the profits of the military-industrial complex. But if we, the fact is that if we really dealt with the conditions that give rise to it uh, and give rise to people being supportive, uh, you know, not just participating in it, there wouldn't be as much profit there for the military contractors. Well, that's certainly true, but you could also say that um, far more profits and far more jobs are available to more people, if not such extreme profits to a few people, if those same companies that were now producing bombs and planes and bullets and whatnot were using their same uh, manufacturing capability and retraining their same workers to manufacture solar panels, for instance. Mm -hmm. And water purification. say that we that everybody loses a job if we stop producing as many bombs as we are producing now. And I'm reminded, I've, I've long thought for, for a while anyway, that uh, that Hillary Clinton was probably the most hawkish presidential candidate since Scoop Jackson in 1972, and his base of support was Boeing in the state of Washington. Right. And what they did, as you pointed out, and I hadn't put it together before, was sort of spread uh, the proverbial Boeing around the country. So that every member of Congress represents some defense contractor. Uh, sure. Very frustrating. As you write, Hillary Clinton continues to cheerlead for escalation in virtually all the U.S. wars. 
We're talking about the Democratic Party platform, which was clearly affected by progressive social movements. And it, it's a little surprising to me that this traditional aspect of liberal movements, you know, the traditional base of the Democratic Party, seems to have virtually no power. What, what happens to these normally unifying principles? What, what happened and why? And, and well, what happens to them is when they don't get held up by powerful, strong social movements, or they don't get held up by a wide range of social movements that may be working on other things but include these basic principles in their work, nobody else is accountable to them. So if the peace movement is not strong, the mm. issue of peace disappears right. from the necessary consideration of any party, whether it's Democrats, Republicans, or anybody else. Yeah. Uh, the reason they took up Palestine in this serious way is not because at the leadership level the Democratic Party is prepared to begin criticizing Israel in a serious no. way. We're far from that yet. Yes, right. But it's because at their base level, their voters are demanding it. So they have to at least pay lip service to it. Right. And later, lip service becomes something more real. Yep, it does happen. And uh, uh, I was a little bit surprised to read that uh, in the... Uh, Democratic Party platform. There's some of the uh, language included specific condemnation. We touched on this a little bit before of the boycott, divest, and sanctions movement. Right. One, Precisely one, because that movement is strong and powerful and becoming well known now. So there's fear of it. Yeah. This was even uh, it went beyond the the 2012 platform, which uh, condemned the idea of any effort to delegitimize Israel, is I think the language in both. Oh, right. But that one didn't get any more specific. This year they did. They, they specifically condemned uh, any efforts by the United Nations to criticize Israel, as well as the BDS movement. Mm. So the supporters of Israel are certainly feeling the pressure. And that's what, they're, what this reflects. And this goes to show, dear listener, that we are not powerless. The powers that be want us to feel powerless, but, and as, as Phyllis Benish uh, talks about, and is just so evident that when people actually focus and make noise, things eventually can happen. Look, we ended the war in Vietnam. It did work, and it's having an effect now. I mean, APAC, the American-Israeli Public Affairs Committee, which has had terrific, unchallenged power for decades, must be kind of freaking out now, and that, that does my heart well. I think that's right. Now, what about Hillary Clinton in specific? I was surprised to read quite a while ago, and I doubted this at first, that Hillary Clinton had once vacationed with Henry Kissinger. Then I looked into it and found out she vacations regularly with Henry Kissinger. <laughs> how, I, I, how much sway and influence has he wielded over her view of foreign policy, do you think? What is the reality here? I I don't think I can answer that. I have no idea. I'm not a fly on the wall of the uh -huh. meetings. I have no idea what they talk about. I do know they've had a long-standing relationship, but she's also had a long-standing relationship with a bunch of different uh, U.S. generals and admirals. Uh, you know, this was very reflected at the Democratic Party uh, convention, where you, you saw speaker after speaker representing the left wing of the party and representing to some degree, social movements yes. and the ideas of social movements, if not movement activists themselves, who might not have been quite as accountable as they were demanding. But when it came to a couple of speakers on the issues of war and security, it was, it was uh, um, Panetta, the former director mm -hmm. of the CIA, mm -hmm. and it was General Allen, one of the most hawkish generals around. There are 
sort of dovish generals. This is not one of them. And they marched onto the, well, at least General Allen, marched onto the stage in military formation, backed by about a dozen, yeah. uh, I, they can't be active duty now, they wouldn't be allowed to, but mm, good point. very recently mm-hmm. retired uh, soldiers and officers, not in uniform, but in military formation, yes. with a military drumbeat yes. behind them. Yes. It was extraordinary. It was shocking and horrifying to me to see this. It was the absolute glorification of the military. Uh, And it was on that issue. And that was where you saw the Oregon delegation and then parts of the California delegation begin chanting, no to war, no to war, no to war. They had known about it. The leadership of the DNC knew about it. The Hillary Clamp campaign knew about it. Hmm. They had passed out ahead of time to everybody coming into the hall these small cards that said USA and American flags. That was the Hmm. the look of the Hmm. day. Each Hmm. session had a different look. What would be the flag? What would be the slogan? This was USA and American flags. And they began that grunting chant, U-S-A, U-S-A, that we've been hearing (laughs) from the right for years now. From the right, It was stunning. And I saw, watching it on on C-SPAN, I could see some individuals I knew from the Democratic Party who were clearly completely uncomfortable doing this. But nonetheless, there they were. Boy, it's it's surprising. You know, that's one thing about history is it always goes in ways one would never expect. You know, it, it still it still seems like both parties, Republicans and Democrats, are just trying to outdo each other in terms of worship of all things military. And as you said, war and peace. That's absolutely right. And and the, right. the belief that America must continue to have the strongest military in the world. The plan criticizes the quote arbitrary cuts that the Republicans enacted. Yeah, there was nothing about cutting the military budget. The only mention of the military budget was, as you say, the opposite of it. There was, you know, these, these cuts that were made mandatory to equal the, the, the domestic social cuts. Uh, they criticized that. That was the only reference, that we should not cut the military budget. Mm. And it's, you know, it's shocking. It's absolutely... It is. And about 15, maybe 20 years ago, uh, there was a former military person speaking around the country. And and he was saying that, again, 15, 20 years ago, the taxpayers, you and I were spending back then about $63 billion a year to maintain obsolete weapon systems, those designed to fight the Soviet Union. No discussion of ending waste or even auditing the Pentagon on stuff like this? No, and in fact, there was support for President Obama's plan of spending a trillion dollars over the next 30 years to upgrade and revamp our nuclear arsenal, despite that same President Obama's supposed commitment to a nuclear-free world. (laughs) Okay, yeah, well, we have two two parties here, one... uh, still has Indeed. some degree of uh, the traditional left, the old peace movement in there. But uh, I think part of the problem with, with the peace movement, just to guess here, is that we're so diverse, focusing on so many different issues, that uh, uh, it's like the gun safety issue. The gun uh, nuts, dare I say, that's their issue. Whereas the people who care about gun safety have so many issues and can't well, focus. Well, that's certainly one of the problems. Yeah, there's yeah. a lot, but that's certainly one of them. And what, what about... The, 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 you know, there's in the Middle East, there's Iran, 
which is, is it still described by Democrats as the leading state sponsor of terrorism? When oh, yeah. All evidence oh, yeah. points to everybody. Our, everybody describes it as that. But our, our close ally, our buddy, Saudi Arabia, all evidence seems yeah, to me that they're most... actually be the leading state yeah. sponsor of terrorism, given their the well-known Saudi support. What's not well-known is whether it is government, the royal family, government-backed institutions, wealthy Saudi individuals. That's not known. Uh-huh, uh-huh. But what is known is that money does come in large amounts from Saudi Arabia to ISIS. And, you know, that's a big chunk of the, oh, yeah. the terrorism that people talk about. In his uh, foreign policy speech, Donald Trump talked about uh, the the uh, support for, that Iran support, of course, he also identified it as the leading state sponsor of terrorism and, and uh, talked about Iran's support for terrorism in the context of ISIS and al-Qaeda, when in fact ISIS and al-Qaeda are sworn enemies of Iran. Yeah. So it's partly ignorance, it's partly just this demonization campaign mm. against Iran that has really never stopped since 1979 with the Iranian Revolution. Absolutely amazing to me. I mean, we have this successful nuclear deal. We could improve relations with the government of Tehran, which is, they're, they're, they seem to be a positive force for the most part. Meanwhile, we have our relations with Russia and the expansion of NATO uh, Russia is very dangerous. Is, yeah. Russia is is fighting ISIS very effectively. Uh, they're working, I believe, with Iran. Uh, it, 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 well, they are. I think it's a question how effective it is because, again, it's relying on military means. It's uh, killing true. enormous numbers of civilians in the process. Ew. And whether mm. I don't think I would want to call it such effective. They are effectively uh, bombing Syria yeah. in <laughs> enormous amounts. Yeah. And yeah, a lot of ISIS fighters are probably being killed, but what we know yeah. is that an awful lot of people who are not ISIS fighters are being killed as well. And that also, you know, is a terrific recruitment tool for ISIS, not surprisingly. What, what, was there anything in the platform about our relations with Russia and NATO expansion? I mean, Russia is understandably afraid of NATO expansion. There was a promise not to expand NATO, and we're doing it anyway. Yeah, well, that promise was then, this is now. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's sort of the... Uh, oh, yeah. Um, but, that's sort of the... the um, was the subject of Russia ever brought up in the Russia, platform? Russia, I don't think, really came up in a in a serious way at all. Um, I, th- yeah, I, I, if it did, maybe I missed it, but I think there was there was really no discussion and very little mention of it. I, I'm not even sure the word appears in the. It, I, I'm not sure of that actually, whether it's in there or not. And but there certainly wasn't anything about a significant change in policy towards no, Russia. No, I'm sure and. Did the word Iran appear in the platform anywhere? Do you know? Oh yes, Iran is a uh, I- Iran is a, a major um, player. It it sort of rather reluctantly uh, came out in in support of the nuclear deal, but it was very much a reflection of the kind of support that the Clinton campaign has has made its own, which is to say, well, this deal is there, but to make the deal work, we have to be prepared for imposing new sanctions. We have to be prepared that if there's any violation for, by any, in any way, shape, uh-huh. or form by Iran, we have to be ready to use the military, despite the fact that the agreement itself basically has a section that says if sure. one or the other side, because remember there's, there's a number of countries involved in this deal. This is not a U.S.-Iran deal. Mm. This was de- negotiated between 
Iran on the one side, and on the other side you had all five permanent members of the U.S. Uh, U.N. Security Council, including Russia and China, along with Germany. And it was the European Union that actually negotiated for that side. So it was a, a whole bunch of countries that are involved. And uh, the, the deal sort of has an arrangement. It says if, if one side or the other thinks that there's been a violation, sure. there's a way, a method of, oh, yeah. of dealing with each other to deal with that. That yeah. does not involve going to war. That is simply, simply ignored. The other thing that was sort of sad about it is that while the agreement itself was quite narrowly defined around the issue of Iran's nuclear power program, mm-hmm. uh, it, it certainly set the stage for what could have been a much broader, different kind of normalization process oh. with Iran. Mm. And it was rather sad that you know, there was no discussion in the, in the platform meetings or certainly nothing in the platform itself that would support that. I have to ask about what, what we know about the Republican Party platform of issues of war and peace. I mean, Donald Trump claims... Oh, it's worse. Uh, he, he claims to be a negotiator, Trump does. Is there any evidence of a less warlike approach than the Democrats in their platform? No, not really. I mean, there's a, <laughs> there's a bit of Trump that has a, a, a somewhat of a streak of isolationism, I would say. True. Negotiations are really only, in his mind, I think, about how to do joint military campaigns. Ah. So, for example, in his speech when he talked about uh, negotiating with Russia, it wasn't diplomatic negotiations about, for example, how to bring the war in Syria, which is so much being fueled by outside players, how to bring that to an end. It was about how we can collaborate on bombing. Who can we bomb together? I That's see. his definition of, of uh, negotiations. So, oh, I'm so reassured. Uh, <laughs> no, the, and the overall, I would say that the... Uh, the the uh, Republican Party uh, platform was equally or more uh, war-based than the Democrats. Yeah, they're pretty open about it, for sure. World mm-hmm. Can't Wait director Deborah Sweet uh, has written, quote, at a time when many millions are rightfully frightened of the possibility of life and war under a Trump presidency. We're saying, <laughs> world can't wait, we're saying that Hillary Clinton has a solid record of allegiance to the endless war doctrine that propels U.S. foreign policy. How concerned should we Americans be that if Hillary Clinton <laughs> becomes president, which seems extremely likely, uh, that more wars will result? Could she feel, trying to be optimistic here, do you think... When she does become president, as I think will happen, could she feel the pressure after the inauguration and be possibly less gung-ho for wars all over the place? What's your sense? Absolutely. I think that there are plans being discussed already to say no honeymoon, that it's not about waiting for the inauguration and the day after the inauguration. It's about the day after the election. It's about beginning in November to say that there will be no support for a presidency, whether it's the first woman president or not, whether it's a Democratic Party president or not, whether it's somebody who is pro-choice and not bad on the environment and okay on labor and some other things or not, that it is not okay for there to be a new president committed to continuing and expanding the wars, and therefore there's going to be mobilizations beginning, some in the streets, some in the level of petitions, some in all kinds of ways, to say no to war as the starting point of any new presidency, whoever is the new president. Yeah, I think I do think we can do it. I mean, we have a history where it has been done. We've been led to believe in the past few decades that we don't have the power. But 
History shows we do. And the, the Bernie Sanders movement frustrated the heck out of the Democratic National Committee. I enjoyed that very much. Uh, and, and, you know, people got involved, millions of people were involved who would otherwise not be involved, people who don't consider themselves party stalwarts at all. The, uh, because the party insiders kind of turned their back on, on you know, working people and went for the uh, rich and powerful and to serve them. What does this, my, what does this say about this, the strength and self-perpetuating party bureaucracy and the future of the Democratic Party? I, I'm a little bit optimistic. Well, that's a good point to end on, I think, because we're coming to the end. Yes. I, you know, I'm not a student of the Democratic Party. I don't know much about its history beyond the basics. What I know is that, like every political movement or organization, it responds to outside political pressure. Yes. That's why our movements are important. It's yes. not just about Bernie Sanders' campaign. It's right. about social movements, all of our movements. So to the degree that all of our movements, both those who will consider it a victory when Hillary Clinton wins, whether it's the women's movement, whether it's the fight for 15, whether it's the movement against the death penalty, all of those movements will legitimately feel some level of vindication with a Clinton presidency because Clinton has accepted and, and put forward those, those campaigns. And that's important. But it will be even more important if those organizations and movements who will see this as a victory are prepared to take on the areas where Clinton has been such a disappointment to others, yes. most especially the issues of war and peace. Then we will see the real power of social movements. Hmm. Sounds lovely to me. Thank you so much for being with us today on Keeping Democracy Alive. Phyllis Bennis, who directs the Inter New Internationalism Project at the Institute for Policy Studies, and I guess the best way to follow your work is uh, IPS, or what would it be? Absolutely. It's ips-dc.org. Thank you so much. Thank you. And on the day 
day the last bird dies There won't be a drop from the big square eyes An old man with his eyes like glass Kisses the last blade of grass Yeah, I'm scared for the children Cause this is the end of the age of the age